This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Christina Dulcher, author of the novel Vox. Dulcher has a doctorate in theoretical linguistics from Georgetown University. Her fiction has appeared in more than 100 journals worldwide. Her novel Vox is a thriller that tells the story of a time in America when women are only allowed to speak 100 words a day. At the center of Vox is Dr. Jean McClellan, who is a linguist who specializes in aphasia, the loss of ability to understand or express speech. While she struggles to save her family from the oppressive political agenda, Jean also strives to create a world where all women can reclaim their voices. We began the discussion with Dulcher talking about her interest in linguistics. I always really loved languages. I loved them since I was since I was able to read, actually. You know, Sesame Street was done with all these sprinklings of Spanish in it. My grandfather was Cuban. I just grew up with, you know, lots of different kinds of words around me. So I loved it, but it didn't seem like the kind of thing that I was going, I was destined to do. Now, I'm the first person in my sort of line of family to go to university. And the idea was, okay, you know, you've got to do something that's going to ensure you get a job. So engineering would be good, right? <laughs> And um, and I was very strong in math and science and programming and, and stuff. So I, I actually started out in that. And it wasn't until I was 30 that I just kind of on a lark went to take a couple of linguistics courses, um, you know, with the intention of, I don't know, traveling the world, world and teaching English as a second language, maybe. I, I, I didn't know I was in this sort of state of flux. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. It was you know, it satisfied all my curiosities about language, but it was also so formal, um, you know, so scientific that it really satisfied that part of my brain as well. And that was it. I mean, after the first class, I think I I decided, oh, I'm just going to keep going with this as far as I can go. I'm going to get a PhD. Not really sure what I would do with that. I anticipated I would you know, teach, which is what most people with PhDs do. But uh, but that was that was really how it happened. I know that people's profession can often change their worldview, but I think there's something with linguistics and language since we use it every day and it's so essential in how we form our world. I'm wondering how you look at language going through your day. Well, I do pay attention to sounds. I mean, my specialty is in acoustic phonetics and phonology, so sound patterns in languages. And I, if, I, I think the, the most, uh, the most, the thing that, that makes me really think about language the most is when I hear accented English or when I hear other languages, uh, particularly ones that, whether it doesn't matter whether they're familiar languages to me or unfamiliar. 
I'm constantly sort of listening to the sounds and amazed at how a sound that can be so elusive to, let's say, your average English speaker just comes out completely normally uh, from the mouth of a native speaker. I mean, because we learn these things. I mean, nobody has to teach us when we're children, right? We just absorb whatever language we grow up in. Uh, there's no such thing as an English-speaking baby or a Mandarin-speaking baby. And so I'm, I'm quite astounded with how something that can be so difficult for an adult learner of a language is just automatically acquired by a child if it's done in the right period of time. So I think about that probably more than any other aspect of language as I'm kind of walking around the world. Do you have a favorite sound? A favorite sound? Oh, um, well, when I had to judge vivas, in which are oral exams at a university in the UK, I needed to make sure that I could recognize and pronounce every single sound in the entire international phonetic alphabet, including sounds that are just, they're done with, you know, vocal mechanisms that are completely different than anything that we English speakers are familiar with. So I, I'd have to say it would be the clicks and, um, you know, which, which might sound like uh, a kiss or a maybe a clucking to move a horse along. And then there are several others depending on, you know, their locus of articulation in the vocal tract. So when you think about the sort of infinite world that is presented to to us when we have a language, your book was about when people's language was diminished, most specifically women. In your book, we are in a dystopian yet modern time when women are basically allowed 100 words. So one of the things that's kind of interesting about Vox, just before we get started down that road, is that the people in Vox, the women in Vox and, and, the, and the girls, are not actually denied language. They are denied the articulation of language, whether that be vocal articulation or signed articulation. Uh, it would be a very different thing, actually, to really take the language faculty from someone because then we would be removing the ability to process language, the ability to formulate, you know, thoughts, uh, even if you never actually speak them and so on. So I think there's a there's a very bright line between speech and and or signed language and language with a capital L, that faculty, which is very much still intact in this population of people who are only permitted 100 words a day in box. Now, how did it start? I've always been kind of interested in incorporating linguistic aspects into my fiction. One, because it's something I know about. Two, it's something I love. And three, it's something that not everybody else can do. So, you know, if you look at Kathy Reichs, the forensic anthropologist, you know, she writes this Bones series and and it's it's something that she knows. It's not something that anyone can pick up the pen and write, no matter how fine a writer they are. So I think it's kind of an important thing when you're talking about craft and inventing stories to, you know, stick with 
familiar territory in some ways. Sure, you want to branch out, but you don't necessarily, I know I don't, for instance, want to teach myself, you know, I don't know, nuclear physics for five years so I can go write a novel about it. That would be a very hard path to take, a very rocky one. So I was interested in looking at first that thing that I mentioned about language, about actually removing language from, from us, removing that faculty entirely. And I wrote a very, very short piece of flash fiction about a bioagent that eradicated the ability to comprehend and to process and to produce meaningful linguistic utterances. And I imagined that the world would not last very long as we know it. I think we descend into chaos because when you take that language faculty away, you're really taking away the essence of this thing that separates humans from the rest of the animal kingdom. So I went farther with that, obviously, and I wanted to write something that was sort of darkly ironic. I wanted to write a thriller because that's generally what I read, thrillers and horror. And the irony, of course, in Vox is that there's, there is this sort of more global kind of story about, you know, eventually removing language altogether. But at its onset, it's just about a woman who spent so much time devoting herself to repairing language that was lost in victims of aphasia that she forgot to use her own. And as a consequence, it was taken away from her. The basic premise of this book that the women and girls are only allowed 100 words a day and they have a, a bracelet, it's more like a handcuff or a mouth cuff where if they speak more than 100 <laughs> right. words, they get shocked. And then there's a lot of rules in your world. They can't read or write. They can only read the ingredients maybe on a, on a flower box or something like that. So once you started to create this main premise, how did you create the rules of this world? It's not the case that all reading and writing on the part of women is uh, banned for, for its own sake. The idea that I had was that they didn't want to actually teach the younger generations how to read or write. So I think what we're seeing is this very insidious effort to one day not just forbid people from speaking too much, but actually to force their language faculty to sort of deteriorate to an extent where maybe they're not really able to think. If I wrote a sequel to Vox, for instance, that was 30 years out, where the ending had become different from 60 years out to a couple of generations, I think we would actually see a world where these wrist counters that monitored language use were not even needed anymore because the language faculty on the part of women would be would have been so deteriorated that um, that there wouldn't be any need to to worry about it. And this was the this was the idea, right? To to basically turn women into kind of docile housekeeping pets, a la the Stepford Wives, a novel written by Ira Levin in the early seventies, and also in the vein of a very true. <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> movement that existed in the Victorian era and saw some resurgences, most notably, you know, in the 1950s, 
when, you know, we lived in the days of Father Knows Best and, you know, women really being much more confined to the domestic sphere than they had been, for instance, during World War II when lots of women were going out and working because the men weren't available. So I wanted to ask the question, you know, what if we had a resurgence of the culture of domesticity or the true woman, uh, the ideal, which was a popular ideal in the late 19th century? And if we did in the modern day, how would we affect that? So I added something that was a little bit more modern, which was the wrist capture. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So at this time in society in America, you have these people who have ascended to power who are all men. And the basic philosophy that they name what their ideology is, is pure movement. And and this so this is coming down from the government, the the wristbands, the women not being able to communicate more than 100 words, not being able to talk to each other in public when they're grocery shopping, those sorts of limitations. So how much did our current political climate intersect with your idea for writing this story? Because also in your story, this new peer movement came right after the United States had their first African-American president. That's true. You know, I suppose we all want to put in a little bit of verisimilitude into our stories. Uh, If there's something that I could take out of a Vox after having written it or change, that would probably be it. Because I did want to make some kind of political commentary about what happens when we sit back and watch the world go by and take things for granted and, and don't act. But I, you know, I wasn't necessarily trying to tie this to the current administration, although obviously there are parallels. And, and of course, women, you know, became much more vocal um, after Trump was elected. So there, you know, I'm thinking of the, the marches, you know, either immediately before or immediately after the inauguration and with the pink hats and things like that. And so really, I was kind of looking at at that situation and asking what would happen if there were a faction of of people in the U.S. who just said, oh, my God, stop, you're getting too loud. But of course, it could have been anyone, right? I mean, it could have been a different march with a different president. Uh, It didn't necessarily have to be this one. I mean, we've seen other conservative presidents in our history with a penchant for um, ultra-conservatism who are, you know, kind of perhaps uncomfortably tied to, you know, various credos. And I, I think that that was really the danger that I was trying to explore. What would happen if, you know, we had this seriously extremist fundamentalist group that effectively, you know, bought the presidency and was permitted to do anything So there are parallels, but there are also kind of accidental parallels. So the main character that we see this story through is Jean. And we can get into her story, but she is our major lens into this world and this new time. 
and she is a, a linguistic expert. Her specialty is aphasia, and that's a loss of language. When she was growing up and young in college, she had a good friend named Jackie. And Jackie was sort of a prophet in her own way, just in terms of what she saw maybe coming politically in the tides that were happening. And she really pressed Jean to go out and do everything, to go to the marches, to go to the protests. And there was this tension there between Jean not doing enough to really save the democracy and the human rights that women have and someone who saw those issues. Can you talk about that idea of not doing enough in a political time? I know I've been very politically passive in my lifetime. And I expect that, given what we know about voting statistics, that quite a lot of people are passive for various reasons. Sometimes it's, you know, I, you know, I don't think we can attribute it all to laziness by any means, but there is this expectation that our world is not going to change substantially. The difference between, let's say, the Republican and Democratic parties was not actually a very big difference up until quite recently. And, and quite, by quite recently, I mean in the past, you know, three or four terms. Also, I think that people are sometimes confronted with impossible choices, right? It's, you know, it's, it's the, this devil that you don't like on the on one side and this other devil that you don't like on the other side. And well, you know, how do you pick? Um, well, I can't, so I'm going to abstain, which is, in, in my mind, actually a reasonable rationale for uh, for abstinence from from voting i mean when we're presented with you know two choices that we don't like and that's basically it i think also that you know because of our electoral system we you know we live in places where where we our vote really doesn't count <laughs> uh i mean if you're in a red state that's always been red and always going to be red and you're a blue voter then what what does your vote matter uh, and vice versa so talk about being silenced. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the system that we have does that sort of by itself, I think. So, you know, so without getting too kind of soapboxy about this, I, I do think it's important to pay attention and to take the time to, you know, look at what's going on around us and, you know, write to our congressmen, you know, stay focused and whatnot, preferably without the vitriol but I certainly can understand how people can find themselves in a bubble at, because, like I said, the world does our world, which is has a strong sense of you know stability, political stability. We have this idea that nothing is really going to change, and so I wrote a book where the main character Jean thought that and turned out to be mistaken. Say the worst nightmare came true in your book, and maybe women over time evolved or just changed to lose the ability to speak as kids and then as adults. What does that world look like? And again, we're not just talking about losing the ability to speak. We're also talking about that inner language, whether it's vocalized or signed or not, right? So we're talking about, you know, not acquiring the, the danger of not acquiring language at all, which would 
basically tantamount to the uh, you know inability to think and to rationalize and um, and and stuff. So uh, you know what what would we be then? Well, what's the thing that separates us from all the other great apes? Uh, the you know the bonobos, the chimps, the you know gorillas, the orangutans. A few things, but language is a really big one of those characteristics. I mean, and so I think we would effectively be reducing these people to kind of pets, to household pets who could you know do domestic chores and you know have sex with their husbands and make babies and things like that, do all the other things that animals do, but they would not be doing the things that humans do. And and that would be quite frightening. What is the role for you of resistance movements in times like these or in our real world? I think I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate of free speech. And, and I do mean free speech, um, not free speech that some people want to hear and others don't, but just free speech in general. I mean, throughout the world, I, I think that when speech is suppressed, we end up having problems. And I also think the only way to really know what people think, whichever side of the fence they're on, and whether we like them or not, is to let them talk. So resistance movements or marches or rallies or whatever um, are important because that's the way we actually we not only get our voices heard if we're on that if we're in that that band of resistors or protesters or marchers that's that's one way to look at it but then we have to look at the other thing that happens when we allow these kinds of protests and we and we should we actually see what people are really thinking so i think the role is twofold um, on the one hand it serves you know, the, the people who are doing the marching to actually give them a form for their voice and whatever that voice is and whatever it has to say, because I certainly don't think we should only allow protests uh, on the part of people whose side we're on, let's say. And on the other hand, you know, it allows us to see what, you know, what people really believe. So I think they're absolutely important to the advancement and the sustaining of any kind of democratic society. In your book, at one point, you write that in one single generation, the world can change into an unrecognizable place. That definitely happened in your book. Do you think it's happening in our world in the United States? Well, it, it happened in my book. It happened in, you know, with World War One. It happened with World War Two. It happened with the Civil War. It happened with, you know, with North Korea and South Korea and North Vietnam and South Vietnam and Ceausescu's Romania and the fall of the Ottoman Empire and all these other places, right? It happened in Cuba. Yes, of, of course this happens. Do I think it's happening here? I don't know. Um, I think there's some danger. And I think that the more divided we are the and the more extremist we become, you know, we've, we, we run the risk of, you know, something perhaps cataclysmic. I'm not a political pundit or analyst or anything, but in, you know, I've never seen uh, a country so torn. And I do think that when you have extreme factions, um, as we know from history, that terrible things can happen. 
So I, I do, I do worry. And, and I, and I worry that we've got a situation where, um, you know, I wrote Vox and it looks like a, you know, the liberal manifesto, I think, but I could have written it from a different standpoint. I could have, you know, I could have silenced not women. I could have silenced right-wing college speakers, for instance, or I could have silenced, you know, conservatives. I think whenever you silence someone, there's, there's a, there's a real danger. Uh, for one, like I said, we don't, we only know what people think when we allow them to say what they want to say. So um, shushing people up is never a good idea. And I also think that, um, that we're seeing silencing coming from, you know, both sides of the political spectrum currently, which is also dangerous. Is there one thing or a few things that you hope your readers take away from Vox? Absolutely. Two things. One, I really hope it um, makes people think about how things can change and how the world does not necessarily march on in following this momentum that, you know, that we've seen in the past. I mean, there, there's no single path in the future. There are multiple paths and we can change the, you know, the direction of those um, by going out and voting or by writing to our senators or congressmen or whatever. And of course, I, I hope people do that. And I hope people do it no matter what they believe, right? I'm, I'm, I don't want just you know, just a certain group of people to go vote or, uh, or anything like that. That would be completely wrong of me. And I think, I think wrong of, of anyone to try and um, tell people what to think. So I hope people, you know, just pay attention to what they believe in and try and do what they can to effect change based on that. The other thing, though, I, I also hope that people, it, the, I hope that Vox makes people think about language a little bit more, uh, about how amazingly easy it is for a child to acquire language and, you know, contrast that with how amazingly difficult it is for, uh, for we as adults to go and learn a second language. Um, I hope people think about these, you know, notions like critical periods and wow, it, is it, you know, is it really true that you have to learn a language, you have to acquire your first language within a certain period of time, else you might lose it. And of course, there's a parallel there with the, the you know, with Jean's struggle in Vox, she herself went through a critical period, albeit not a linguistic one. She went through sort of a political critical period where she had a chance to use her voice and she did not. And then she lost it. So I, I kind of like that, that mirroring of the linguistic and the, I guess the sociopolitical in the book. And I hope people see that link. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'll tell you what the passage is, who wrote it, and what the book is from uh, after I read this. Instead of taking Charlie's pulse, there was really no point. He took one of the old man's hands in his. He saw Charlie's twin sons at four on swings. He saw Charlie's wife pulling down a shade in the bedroom wearing nothing but the slip of Belgian lace he'd bought her for their first anniversary. Saw how her ponytail swung over one shoulder when she turned to look at him, her face lit in a smile that was all yes. 
he saw a farm-all tractor with a striped umbrella raised over the seat. He smelled bacon and heard Frank Sinatra singing Come Fly With Me from a cracked Motorola radio sitting on a work table littered with tools. He saw a hubcap full of rain reflecting a red barn. He tasted blueberries and gutted a deer and fished in some distant lake whose surface was dappled by steady autumn rain. He was 60, dancing with his wife in the American Legion Hall. He was 30, splitting wood. He was five, wearing shorts and pulling a red wagon. Then the pictures blurred together, the way cards do when they're shuffled in the hands of an expert and the wind was blowing big snow down from the mountains. And in here was the silence and Azzy's solemn watching eyes. At times like this, Dan knew what he was for. At times like this, he regretted none of the pain and sorrow and anger and horror because they had brought him here to this room while the wind whooped outside. Charlie Hayes had come to the border. So um, that is from Dr. Sleep by Stephen King. And I am, um, you know, I'm a lifelong Stephen King fan. I love his writing. I love his horror. I love the way he makes me think about the things that I'm really afraid of and the things that I don't need to be afraid of. But mostly I really love the humanity in his writing. And I think that passage where a, um, the grown-up Danny from the child we all know from The Shining, is now working in a hospice, helping people cross the border from life to death. And he sees their lives when he does this, and he almost remembers their own memories. I thought that passage was really beautiful. It stuck with me. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to get right or changed a lot from the first draft? I'll preface this one. I, I wrote, when I first started writing flash fiction, I wasn't really quite sure what a story was. I know that sounds ridiculous, but uh, but I'm, I had to teach myself a lot of writing craft uh, to the extent that I you know, know any writing craft at all now. And so one of the mistakes that I made early on was uh, writing things that were vignettes and not really stories. So they didn't have arcs. They didn't have plot arcs or character arcs. And I wrote a very short paragraph about a, a little girl who was being set up and dressed and photographed with a daguerreotype, uh, which is that kind of photographic apparatus that was used in the 19th century um, very often to take pictures of dead people. Uh, because photography obviously was not ubiquitous. So I, I wrote something and, and it ended up just being a snapshot of these photographers setting up this little girl to, um, to look as if she was dead. And I realized I needed to make a story out of it. So, um, so if you like, I'll read you this sort of six paragraph. It's the very short, the very short paragraphs. It's about 300 words long, the whole story. If you'd like, I'll read you that. The title is Tilda Always Did Love Her Flowers. Tilda emerged an awkward little thing, a toad of an infant with the poise of a plow horse. She had a flattened nose, two fishbowl eyes, 
and nine fingers, which made her seem as if she had been hit with a shovel, said the midwife. In dire need of spectacles by the age of five, predicted the father. Incapable of working a needle and thread, thought the mother, looking years into Tilda's future. The mother considered her daughter's failings through a thick veil of ether. Tilda lacked the trifecta of grace, comeliness, and utility, and lacking those husband-worthy qualities, she would ever be a tragic burden, said the midwife. An expense, calculated the father. An embarrassment, thought the mother, conjuring images of disastrous garden parties and spilled tea and the whispers of bustle-bottomed lady guests. So those are the first two sections of this five-section piece, which does turn out to be a story, and you can read it, if you like, at Flashback Fiction. It was published in January 2018. But, um, but that was, it wasn't necessarily tricky. Um, it was an interesting thing because when I resuscitated this one paragraph vignette, I did it uh, with pen and paper at a cafe in Naples where I spend a lot of time. And so it's a neat story because it's one of the very few that I've written on pen and paper. And also it was, it turned, it was a successful story that came from something that really was not, was not destined to be successful that I'd written probably two and a half years before. Where do you write? On a very small round table. There's just about room for my laptop in the front window so I can see the neighbors walk by when they um, take their dogs out. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Oh, I'll go for a walk or a run or play some tennis or head out into the garden. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband usually gets everything first uh, once it's finished. And he's really not a writer. He's a reader. But he's got a great legal mind, a great analytical mind. And he's also got a wonderful attention to detail. So if there's some kind of problem with mechanics or... Or, or logic, you know, he'll see that. Then for feedback on, you know, story arc and characterization and things that are much more writing craft related, I have a fantastic group of women. Um, we call ourselves the Flash Force Four. And we mainly write flash fiction, but we've started writing novels. And they were actually the, the first people to see Vox and definitely the first people to see my, my next novel, Q, after my husband. How have you dealt with rejection? <laughs> Liquor. <laughs> you know, the first ones are really hard, and then you realize that it's always going to happen. So you, I guess, you know, I just sort of suck it up. Write something else. Uh, go submit somewhere else. You know, what I've found is that what is a story that's right for one publisher or one journal or one editor isn't right for another one. Uh, there are... I mean, I've got 100 stories, probably, maybe 150. Uh, very few of them, you know, were accepted to the first place I submitted. Some were. But most of the time, it was just a matter of finding the right place. I mean, we've all been like that. I mean, we've, we've heard stories about, you know, novelists who are extremely well-known now and how many rejections they had to, they had to endure. So it's a thing that happens. And I think that... Um, 
the the old advice is to never aim for 100 publications or 100 acceptances aim for 100 rejections because at least that way you know you're getting your work your work out there this is probably hard for a linguist but what is your favorite word <laughs> that is the easiest thing in the world to answer my favorite word is procrustean for a lot of reasons one because it just seems so appropriate in so many situations when people are trying to force you into a box or trying to get you to think in a particular way or behave in a particular way according to their standards. And I think we've all been there. We've all suffered that. And most people don't know what the word is, which is also kind of a you know fun little thing when I want to put my devil horns on. Um, but, uh, but it's the adjectival for the monster procrustes who, as you probably have heard the story of the this ogre who kidnapped sailors and put them on a bed and decided whether they fit the bed or not. If they were too short for the bed, he would stretch them on a rack until they fit. If they were too long for the bed, he will cut he would cut off enough to make them fit on that bed. So there we are, Procrustean, the fitting to an arbitrary standard. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Christina Dulcher, author of the novel, Vox. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.